All right, be sorry, anyone have a swing inside the bridge? You look at your Bibles with me. We're going to be in Philippians chapter one, continuing on from where we were last week, Philippians chapter one, looking at verses uh, 27 through 30. We're going to write a start at it, we'll start verse 25. So Paul writing this letter to the church at Philippi says, verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your hopes. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I said that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you again for this day. Thank you for all your many blessings. Thank you for your grace towards us, God. Thank you for your word. We ask that as we open your word, that you illuminate this text. Um, God, that your Holy Spirit um, shine light on this text, that he shine light on the hearts. Um, God, that we would know uh, what you would have to teach us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Um, God, that you conform us to the image of Jesus Christ uh, through the things that we read and learn here today. And we thank you for um, the blessings that come along with church and of being part of a congregation. Um, God, we thank you for the, the privilege of um, um, coming together as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, opening your word, uh, reading it, and being taught from it. God, we ask that you would bless it, uh, that you would bless the, the reading and the preaching of your word throughout our community. Um, God, as we do each week, um, almost, we, we we pray that you would use the, the sister congregations of, of um, Blount County, uh, regardless of denomination, God, if they are gospel believing, Christ preaching um, churches, then we pray that you would bless them, and that you would draw people to your Son and to your Word and to His Church um, through uh, the ministries that each one of those churches represent. God, we ask that you would bless and move and bring revival and awakening to your church. God, that you would stir us up in our own hearts. That you would take that that little spark um, of faith that, that we have and that you would fan it into a flame. Um, God, that you would um, increase our um, our love, and our passion, and our commitment, and um, our, um, our boldness um, for who you are and for your gospel. 
that we would be um, faithful witnesses um, to our families, to our workplaces, to our schools, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our community. God, and ultimately to the world uh, of who your son Jesus Christ is. Help us to do that. Uh, help us to live worthy of the gospel that we are going to talk about from, from uh, Philippians today. Uh, Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there is a, uh, when I'm in seminary, there's a warning during one of my preaching classes. And so they, they warn you sometimes about these specific kinds of illustrations that you use. So sort of like a funny story, like uh, people, especially in youth ministry, are always using illustrations or wanting to show booty clips of like movies that they saw when they were kids. And they just, they, they tend to forget that there are certain elements in those things, like maybe certain language and certain topics or whatever. And they'll say, hey, let me use this illustration. And then they realize it was a bad illustration to use because it, it, it had things in it that probably shouldn't have been used in church. Well, that's not the, the level that I'm talking about here. The, the, the illustration, uh, the warning about illustrations was that oftentimes, uh, as men, um, and again, this is only a general rule, right? So I'm not attacking anybody's manhood if this is not you. But in general, oftentimes men are interested in sports, and they're oftentimes interested in warfare and the history of warfare and things like that. And so what we find is this. There is often the case that men who are preaching tend to draw their illustrations from those two things. So if they're trying to illustrate some biblical principle, they're like, now I'm going to do a sports illustration, or I'm going to do a war illustration, or, or something like that. Um, again, that's not obviously 100% true every time. There's plenty of men who don't like war or sports. Um, and there may be some women out there who really love sports, and they even really love war. I don't know. Um, I, obviously, there are probably some husbands who say, yeah, I don't know why you So, but, but in general, um, I think men tend to gravitate towards those illustrations. And sometimes it's, it's why I say, I'm going to find a different illustration because it's, I'm going to lose half of my audience, right? Half the people in the audience are not going to know that reference. They're not going to gravitate. It's not going to mean anything to me. Okay. But I'm going to say this. Um, this, Passage, I'm going to give some more sports illustrations, but here's the reason why. Because the wording that Paul uses in this passage, he is pointing us towards those ideas, those illustrations. Okay? The language he uses as he talks about what the life of the church is, is drawing attention to, to the world of, of politics at a level, um, of, of warfare, and of athleticism. And so, um, remember where we're at in the larger story, right? We are, um, we are reading a letter that Paul is writing from a Roman prison to the church, um, across the sea in the city of Philippi, at the church that he planted there about a decade before. Paul's in prison. He is under the threat of possible execution for, for being there um, because of his faith. And he is writing to a church in Philippi that is also experiencing persecution in their own lives. Um, and, and he is writing to encourage them and to tell them about how things are going um, where, where he's at. So you remember last week we talked about this idea where Paul, um, he says, if I die, then I'll get to go be with Jesus. And if I live, then that'll be fruitful work for me. Um, God's got things for me to do here. We talk about that idea of what are you here for? What are you still alive for? Why has God not taken you on to eternity? 
because you're here for something. There's some job that God has for you to do. And Paul is convinced of that. He's convinced that God still has work for him to do. And so there in verse 25, again, we'll read it. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. So Paul is confident that he will be released from prison ultimately, that he'll be able to return and continue to do ministry and, and specifically uh, in Philippi to check in on them, to serve them, to encourage them in, in the faith. And this section that we're coming to is basically about what Paul hopes will be the case when he gets there. Okay, It's what Paul hopes to find once he's released from prison and once he gets to go back to the, the church in Philippi and see these people again, what he hopes to find when he gets there. So it's an exhortation, but it's also an expectation of what, uh, what he wants to see. And the broad thing is that he hopes that he will find them living, and, and the wording is, in a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so verse 27, he says, only let, right, the one thing that I wish, the, the, the one thing that I want when I come back to you, is only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I can come and see, whether I can see you or in absence. So we come to this passage, and there's this, this interesting word there at the beginning, and, it, and it's one of those words that points us, that Paul is using a language that points us towards certain illustrations. So that word manner of life, that passage translated manner of life, is a Greek word called politouoe. That may be wrong. Paul, politouoe. Okay? So here at the beginning, polito, okay? It's about polis, the city, about politics. That word is translated here, manner of life, but here's the idea behind it. It's a word that means how to live as a proper citizen of a, a, a nation or a king or, or, or whatever, okay? And so Paul is saying, I, the only thing I want to see is that you are living as a proper citizen that is worthy of the gospel uh, of Christ. Now, the reason why Paul is using this language is probably because of something we've already referenced before, right? We said Philippi was as a special city. Philippi was a imperial city. It was considered to be like a baby Rome. Right? It was a it was a Rome, a city that was based on Rome. It's 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 governing, it's even its uh, organization, it like you know, city layout, things like that were were based on Rome. It's a sister colony to the capital. Citizenship's a big deal in this in this town. They understand that they are expected to live in a very particular way here because they are a baby Rome. They are a, a sister city. And Paul's reminding them of something. He's saying, you get the idea of citizenship. You get the idea of living according to a certain rule of life. But I'm telling you that you have a greater citizenship. You have a citizenship that's far more important than your Philippi Roman citizenship. You have citizenship in the kingdom of God. And the reality is that citizenship always comes with privileges, and it always comes with responsibilities. And Paul's saying, I'm calling you to live in a worthy manner. Of those things. So he says, I wish that you would live in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ. Be worthy citizens of the kingdom that the gospel has created among you. 
I think probably the case is that if we talk about American citizenship, we would all know things. We would say, what does it look like to be a good American citizen? We would think about certain civics ideas. We would probably think about voting. We would probably think about being a good neighbor. We would probably think about honesty and we would probably all these industry and these different things, right? Probably the case is that some of the problems that our country is having right now is because people have forgotten many of those aspects of what it means to be a good citizen. But the question that Paul is posing here, or the encouragement that he's making, is what does it look like to be a good citizen? What does it look like to live worthy of the gospel? So let's talk about that language just for a second before we jump in. Even the language of living worthy of the gospel seems a little bit problematic, I think. Because it straddles that line between understanding how our works play into something and how the grace of God is demonstrated in the gospel. So what's that even mean to be worthy of the gospel? The language seems to contradict our very understanding of the gospel. Isn't the gospel, isn't the whole point of the gospel that we are unworthy of it? Isn't it the point? Is that we are unworthy of the gospel, and yet God in his grace, he gives that to us. Grace is what makes it happen. We can't be worthy of the gospel, even to talk about being worthy of it, to merit that which is unmerited, takes away from it, it undermines the nature of the gospel, right? It tries to say that somehow we can earn the free gift that we have in Jesus Christ and the cross. So it's a knee-jerk reaction among a church that is often legalistic, often moralistic, to define itself in terms of that grace and say, we don't even think about law. We don't even worry about law. Uh, our church can be so legalistic and so moralistic that we're going to run the exact opposite way. And you end up running into this thing that we call antinomianism. And you may say, what the, what does antinomianism mean? I don't, I've never heard that word. It's, it's pretty simple. It means anti-law. Instead of being a legalist, we end up being an antinomian. It's that idea that Christians have been released somehow because of grace from obligation of observing the law. That's not right either, right? We're not released from the obligation of following the law. But we know it is the grace of Christ alone that saves us through faith. We aren't saved by works, and they add nothing to our salvation. But we also believe that at salvation, we are given a new living heart that there is a new desire put in us to be obedient to God. And that we actually can be obedient to God. We're filled with God's Holy Spirit. He leads us by if we will follow. Yes, there's an old man in us too. And there's the old nature. The old nature is not completely gone. The old man is, a, is something that we are starving to death. That we are shriveling up, right? As we follow the Spirit. But man, that old man, he comes back every once in a while. He exerts his, his influence, that rebellious impulse that draws us away from God, draws us towards sin, even though we've been freed from sin. So the reality is this. We never put the weight of our salvation in obedience in the law. We don't do that. We put it in grace. Here it is. Your obedience can't save you. 
and your failure does not disqualify you from salvation. Okay? Let me say it again. So hear it. Your obedience can't save you. And your failure does not disqualify you from salvation. But that doesn't mean these things don't matter. And there's a way that Christians are called to live. In a way that a life that is that we are called to of obedience to the commands of God that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of Christ, worthy of his cross, even if it's still inconsistent, right? Even if you still mess up in all kinds of many ways, even if there's it's still plagued with failure, we're still called to live according to those commands. Paul is calling the church of Philippi to live that way. And he's calling us to live that way. And so he zooms in on a couple of characteristics, again, illustrated with this military and athletic language as we go through. So watch this. The first thing he says, what does it look like to walk worthy of the kingdom? Verse 27, the second half, 27. He says, I, I, I hope that when I visit you, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. So standing firm is a Greek word, stecho. Stecho is a word that is usually used in a military context. And what it has a picture of is wars aren't necessarily fought this way anymore, but you have a line of soldiers in ancient warfare, and it is about holding that line. It is about standing firm as the uh, opposing army advances. So one of my favorite movies, probably uh, among the men in here, one of your favorite movies too is the movie Brain. Okay, man, I love the movie Braveheart. Okay, and there's a scene that is nothing in Braveheart is historically accurate, just for the record, right? It's all a big, like, made up, uh, you know, heroic mess, but it's awesome. Okay, so there's a scene at the Battle of Sterling. Now, the Battle of Sterling was a real thing that happened, but it's sort of like they changed some of the facts and make it a little different. Okay, but there's this cool thing you'll probably remember the Battle of Sterling. The scene anyway, even if you've never seen the movie, because it's the one where um, William Wallace makes that big speech uh, where he says, you know, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom, right? And everybody's like, uh, people make jokes, you see that parody and all these things like that, okay? But here's here's what that what prompted that speech. The scene is, is all the, the Scottish warriors are there getting prepared for, for the battle. And all of a sudden, the English army starts coming over the hillside. And they come over, and they come over, and they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming, and the hill becomes black with the bodies of these people who are showing up in this battle. And the Scottish guys are looking around going, there's like, we're, we're outnumbered like five to one. And one of the Scottish guys says, you know what? I don't have time to fight a battle so that these lords can have more lands and more money. I'll just have to pay taxes to them. I'm going home, guys. See you. And they start to walk off. And that's when when William Wallace shows up and says, no, hey, I stand your ground. Stand here, okay? You're not fighting for them. You're fighting for your own freedom. You're fighting for, for your own homes and families. Stand here, all right? So that's the first part. And then this thing happens when, okay, they decide to stand, and, and they, they form their line, and the cavalry, the heavy cavalry of, of the English army starts riding towards 
the Scottish line, right? And they're sitting there, and there's this famous scene where he says, you can see it, right? They, it would be terrifying to be standing there on a line and having these men with lances, thousand-pound horses charging towards you. You know you're going to get run over. You know you're going to get run through. And as the army is advancing, they're, they're on this line. William Wallace starts saying, hold. And when they get closer, the music is crescendoing. He says, hold. And he's screaming now, hold, hold. And then at the last second, they lift up these big spear pipe things, and the cavalry falls on them, and people are impaled, and horses, you know, die, and everything. It's this big bloody mess, okay? But man, there's this, that's the language. And you might say, actually, just being a dude, right? You're just glorying warfare or whatever. No, no, no. This is the language that Paul uses. He's saying, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to stand in the face of opposition to the gospel, stand in opposition to um, the life of the church, stand in opposition to the world and the persecution that, that is coming upon the church in these things. It is to say, we have to be like that army. We have to be standing shoulder to shoulder, knowing that we're about to get hit with an onslaught, and yet saying, stand firm. Hold. Hold. Hold the line. Ephesians 6, another military passage talks about putting on the full armor of God. It's interesting because in the first verse and a half, listen to the language. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. Okay? In like a verse, he says stand, the same context, stecho, stand three times, right? I mean, this is a key part of what it means to live faithfully and worthy of the gospel. We have to hold the line. We have a world that is at every moment breaking ranks and walking away. At every aspect of the Christian life. The spirit of the age is to cave against pressure and give in to the world and to, to the society. And what is Paul saying? Do not compromise biblical truth. Don't give in to the pressure of societal norms. Live differently. Stand there. Feet planted. Brace yourself because it's about to hit. It's coming. All right? Stand there. But don't just stand there. He also says we have to strive together. Striving side by side. The verse continues. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Right? Again, specific word is used. Striving side by side. That is translated from a word that is son atleo. You can hear it in there. Atleo. It's where we get our word athlete from. The idea of striving together, it actually has the context of wrestling together. But here's the problem with the way it kind of works in, in the language of society. I don't know about you, but when I think about wrestling, I think about wrestling against something, right? You wrestle against someone. You don't wrestle with them or side by side with them necessarily. But there is a cool illustration, again, for maybe sports, and, and if you don't know anything about this, then, then it may go over your head, right? But there's this strange 
an exotic sport called rugby. Right? And to be honest, nobody from America understands. Right? It is a bizarre and weird thing. You just watch it on TV and you're like, I don't know what they're doing. It's definitely kind of like football. It's definitely kind of like soccer. It's definitely kind of like a bar brawl. Like, I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but it's all in there somewhere. But there's a cool thing that happens in rugby. There's this thing called a scrum. Okay? And a scrum, uh, uh, Tim's looking at it. This is Tim, he's playing rugby. Yeah. So he knows exactly. This is, this is not going over getting it. This is hitting in the place. Um, so a scrum is this. So it's this weird thing that happens. If you've ever watched a rugby match, so same way that in a football game, when the down ends, there's like a line of scrimmage, right? So the, the, the two teams line up on the line of scrimmage and they get down low and or whatever, right? Well, in rugby, you do this thing called scrum. And what happens is a group of three guys get together, they put their arms over each other and interlock shoulders or whatever. And then they get down, and there's three guys on the other team, and they get down, and you end up essentially locking your heads and shoulders together to where none of you can use your arms. You're just like pushing into each other with a space floating, right? And then three more guys come in behind you. They get down on their knees, and they put their shoulders like at your rear end or your thighs or your hips, and they start pushing against you. And then another three guys show up behind that. And what ends up happening is you have this turtleneck of people, and none of them are using their hands. All their hands are locked in up top, and it's just a bunch of feet, like a turtle dome with feet, right? And they do this weird thing where they roll the ball in, and then, like, you have to pick the ball and get it out or whatever. But here's what's crazy about it. Every single person in that dome has a job. They are all pushing, exerting force, um, helping in some way, stabilizing, giving um, energy to the pile in some way, right? They're essentially wrestling together, okay? And every single person in the process has a purpose. They are literally sun athleo together, striving together, exerting unified critical strength to accomplish something. All those pictures come together, right? That's what they're doing. So we have a second picture of what it means to live worthy of the gospel. And not just stand there, not just hold the line, but in one mind and energy, interconnected, exert force, right? Strive together, work towards the common goal. He goes on and elaborates about that. He said, you're supposed to do these things in one mind, in one spirit, Right? That's expressing the unity of, of energy and strength and mindset and goal. We all have to believe in the same, that the same things are important, that there's a larger purpose that our lives are pointing to, that there is a meaning that we all share. There's a calling on our lives that is the same, and we are all working towards that goal in our own ways. We don't all have the same jobs, but we are all working towards it. We spoke tonight in our discipleship class for, for service about the marks of a healthy church. One of those marks is biblical theology. And that's kind of the exact kind of thing we're talking about. This larger purpose, this right understanding of the overarching picture and message and goal of the scriptures and how it all fits together, that's what biblical theology is about. That's something that the Bible and the healthy church understands. It understands, hey, this is a big picture. This is what we all need to be working for. 
There's lots of little things along the way that we can do. It'll be good, bad, or indifferent. But man, the big picture is this. And so I think Paul, that's what his hope is here. He's saying, stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Strive together for the work of the gospel. And in verse 28, and be courageous. He says in verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And it is a weird world out there, right? And there's a lot of reasons to be afraid. I worry about my children and the world that they will inherit. Because I look around and I go, man, I just, like it's going to take a reliability for, for something to happen. It's going to take a, a massive change in people's hearts and minds and the way the world works and the direction we're headed for something for the world that they inherit to be the world that I would like them to inherit. But you know what? That's the fear talking to me at a certain level. There are always going to be opponents to the church. Inside the church and outside the church. Inside the church, we will have false teachers. Outside the church, we will have persecutors. But that courage that we're supposed to have is not the absence of conflict, and it's certainly not even the absence of fear. Obviously, you probably realize this. You can't be courageous unless you're afraid. You realize that? If, if, if you're not scared, you're just stupid. Okay? Um, that's the deal. Um, fear is the normal part. But fear gives us an opportunity to say, I will be courageous against this. The opportunity to be courageous is only presented if there is fear and if there's danger out there. But so what does that mean? Well, what courage is it means it ends up being self-control, basically. It ends up being the self-control to do what? Stand your ground. To strive together, even though the odds seem set against you. And to live as God, God has called you to and trust that he is going to work with us. That's what it means to be courageous. And all of this is fortunate part of God's plan. That's what we see in verse 29, that all of these things are coming together under the sovereignty of God and how he's working these things out in the world. Because watch this, man. Uh, if you're not a reformed and Calvinistic persuasion, then this is one of those verses that you just have to go, hmm, hmm. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This passage said that belief is granted to you. Not only belief, but suffering as well. The key to that idea is that it's not just given to you. Okay? It is granted to you. The difference between something that is given to you and something that is granted to you is probably the intention of it. Lots of things are given to people, but when something is granted to you, it is for, it is a gift for you, right? It is a good for you. So what are we being told there? God has given, he has chosen to give belief to people, but he has also chosen to give suffering to people. And if you have been given suffering, then God calls you to respond faithfully to it. Paul reminds them of how, of his own hardship, of his own suffering, 
in the gospel. If you go back and read the story from Acts 16 and 17, Paul leaves the city of Philippi and he goes to the city of Thessalonica. He already had a hard time in Philippi and he goes to the city of Thessalonica and Thessalonica he has at least as hard a time. Uh, some people believe and trust in Christ, but other people raise up a mob and a riot. And Paul and, and the other apostles um, or the other uh, workers, church planters, have to sort of sneak out of town by night to move on to the next city. So he ends up going to a town called Berea, and in Berea, everybody's really cool. But guess what? The Thessalonians were such jerks. They send people to Berea just to stir up more problems. And so Paul says, you remember what happened to me when I was with you. You remember that I had a hard time in Philippi. And then I went and I had a pretty hard time in Thessalonica too. And now I'm having another hard time because I was arrested in Jerusalem and I've been shipwrecked and I've been bit by a snake. And like, there's all these things that have happened to me since then. I've been having a pretty hard time. And guess what? You're going to be part of that too. You're going to suffer in many ways too. But know this. It's part of God's plan. It has been granted to you. You have been gifted with suffering. You have the honor of being someone who God has counted worthy to suffer for the gospel. And that's a crazy, incredible thing. Verse 30, he uses more of that interesting language. Verse 30, he says, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had now here that I still have. That word conflict is the word agon, which is the same place that we get our word agony from. But here's the specific kind of agony that it, that it is. It is the agony of someone in the arena. Okay? The word agon can actually mean the physical place of the arena, the physical place of the battlefield. Right? But the way Paul is using it, he's using it euphemistically to say it is the fight and the conflict that takes place in the arena. But the picture of it is this. It is the exertion that you have when you are in a, a athletic or even gladiatorial contest where you are spending and pouring out your life and energy all the way to the point of death. Right? You are leaving it all on the field. As, as we would say. And he's saying, you know that I've experienced that, Church of Bill Biden. You know the conflict, the exertion in the field that I have uh, made. And that same kind of thing is going to come to you as well. If we think the Christian life should be easy, we misunderstand all of it. That is not the thing. All the time. All the time. All the time. I have Christians come to me and say, Ash, I don't know what's going on. I must be living unfaithfully. God must be mad at me in some way because I'm going through all these difficult things. And bad stuff is happening in my life. Difficult things are happening to me in my work, in my family. Um, I, must be un I must be doing something wrong, right? And the answer is, nope. That's the Christian life. Suffering is part of it. Those are all opportunities for us to live faithfully and worthy of the gospel. Again, think about that illustration as it plays out through all of life. You cannot be courageous unless you are afraid. You cannot be faithful unless something shows up in your life to test that faithfulness. Very few people live lives like the pictures that we see of Francis and the CC, where he's just like standing in a garden like birds are laying on his head. It's like 
you know, like that's not that's not even the life that he lived. It's just what the little statue in their garden shows, right? That's not what it looks like. Your life is going to have all kinds of difficulty in it. Specifically, difficulty against the gospel, against the Christian faith, against you living according to and living worthy of the gospel in your life. But God is going to use that. That is going to be opportunity for you to be faithful. So that conflict, that agony is granted to you, gifted to you by God. And as we respond in courage, as we respond in striving together, as we respond in standing fast with each other, God is using it for a particular outcome, he says. That actually is what becomes our assurance in the faith. It confirms our faith, which is just a weird, incredible insight. That last verse, verse section, verse 30, he said this, living this way, right? Standing firm, striving, being courageous. In the midst of this suffering, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So what does that mean? It means endurance through suffering, faithfulness during trial. Those are evidences. In fact, they are what Paul says are clear signs of your salvation. People all the time, again, all the time, all the time, come and they say, oh, actually, I just, I'm doubting my salvation. I don't know if I'm really saved. I don't know if really God's really working in me. Uh, I, I don't know all these things. Well, let me tell you one clear sign, Paul says, that assures you of your salvation, is that in the midst of suffering, if you continue to live faithfully, God says, that is evidence of the truth of your salvation. You should look to that with a certain level of assurance. Now, I'm not saying it couldn't be faith, maybe. I'm, I'm right. I'm not saying that. But man, it's something that should encourage us. As we are suffering trial, and as we say, I refuse to quit, walk away, surrender, break ranks, um, compromise, I won't do any of those things. I am going to stand firm. I'm going to strive courageously, and I'm going to walk worthy of the gospel in this difficulty. And you're faithful in that, and God says, that looks like salvation. That looks like the kind of thing that somebody who actually had a real relationship with Jesus Christ would do. And so you should look at that in your own life and go, man, I'm, I'm, I'm firmed in my salvation because of that. And moreover, it should be a testament against the world that they are not in Christ. That as they work for wickedness, as they work towards evil, as they work towards undermining the gospel and the word of God, that is assurance of the position that they hold to, which is they are dead, right? They are cut off from Christ. Now, that doesn't mean they have to stay that way. They can repent of their sin and turn to Christ too. But as it stands, it's evidence that they are against Christ and you are right with Christ. Tragically, isn't that just the opposite, though, of the way many people's lives turn out? Something terrible happens to God's church, to God's people. And because of that terrible thing, that person determines that, well, God is there, he is working, he is with them, and they walk away from the faith. But Paul says, if you could persevere through that trial, that would have been evidence that you truly were saved, and that God truly was working. And that you were on the right path. 
suffering faithfully lived through is a badge of honor for the church and a badge of honor for the believer. Again, he's zooming in particularly on uh, church suffering, right? He's talking about suffering for the gospel against those things. But I think this, this has truth even into the other areas of our life. Suffering in terms of the, the normal kind of difficult things that we go through in, in the death of loved ones, in the um, you know, children walking away from faith, and in the, the tension that we have in marriages and relationships and, and family. Walking faithfully through those trials is evidence of our salvation, of evidence of the fact that God is working. So what do we say to all? We are exhorted in this passage. Stand firm. Strive together. Walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be a courageous warrior. Be a dedicated athlete. Be a faithful citizen of the kingdom of God. And even in the midst of suffering, God is using it to strengthen and confirm us in the faith. Let's go to the Lord for Father God, we thank you for uh, your word again. God, we thank you for the calling that you have on our lives. God, it is, it is scary to, to um, try to walk these things in our own strength. God, we look to our own lives, our own hearts, our own wills, our own dedication, and we think to ourselves, oftentimes, God, I am too weak to accomplish the things that you have called me to. God, some of us are, are maybe more sure in ourselves, and we say, no, I can accomplish these things from my government. But we often find ourselves humbled in those situations because we have tried to do these things apart from the strength that you provide. But God, you call us to walk worthy of the gospel. God, not ignoring or in any way speaking against the unmerited grace that you have shown us Jesus Christ, but living in a way that honors that grace that and no one between or those who did or were both in opposition. Opposition from within, opposition from that. God, help us to do these very things. Help us to stand strong, to stand firm, to hold fast, to, to hold the line. God, as the world and culture and self and Satan and interest and all the things that press in on us, God, help us to stand there like those pictures we see in the movies, with shields in their lives. Uh, God, push you back and hold them back against those three. God, help us to strive together to each of us work towards the common goal that you have promised to in Christ Jesus. God, that, that we are here to be witnesses to Jesus Christ. That uh, all the many other things that, that we do and the ways that we live, different activities that we are part of, God is center of all of them. We are living to be witnesses in Jesus Christ. 
And we do that as we work, we do that as we bring some pains, we do that as we um, join the body of believers in, in the ministry of the church. We do that with our neighbors, we do that with our friends, we do that with our problems, in every aspect of our life. It's about being a witness of Jesus Christ, that ultimately everything has to be that. Help us to do that right now. Help us to be courageous. You're so fearful about so many things. God, fear keeps us from acting in noble and faithful ways. Now, we don't think we're capable of these things. We know that you are. So, help us to rest in you and be courageous to walk where you Father, we know you are in control. We know you've got a plan. We know that everything happens according to your will. Remind us that during trial, remind us that during hardship. God, in ways that we cannot see, even though the storm clouds of life may hide your face, God, we know behind it, we are smiling. God, your love is Thank you. We praise you. We ask you to see Jesus. Thank you. 
Amen. Uh, good to see you. Glad you're here this week. Um, hope you have a good week. Remember, uh, men's meeting tomorrow night. Uh, baptism before service, so 12.30 next uh, Sunday. Uh, hope you can come and be a part of that. Uh, and um, hope you have a good week here to spend as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you. You peace. See you next week.